So I got feedback from you the last time we were in the gym about sitting in the bleachers. And uh, so today we're going to have a halftime appropriate in a gym. I'm not joking. We're going to have a halftime and you'll get a chance to stand about halfway through. And I'm not going to make a regular habit of this, but I'm doing it for you, okay? (laughs) All right. Exodus chapter 15 and verse 26 contains one of the great promises that God made to the nation of Israel. It says, if you will give earnest heed to the, work, to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight and give ear to His commandments and keep all of His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer, healer. I remember well the day that I was told I had deadly pancreatic cancer. I'll never forget that day. The kind that I was told less than 1% survive through the first five years. I recall the breadth and the depth of prayer that was said not only here but literally around the world on my behalf. That was three years ago. I still feel very humbled and very thankful, sometimes even to the point of tears, each time I take a CT scan and get that dye through my veins and it comes out clear again. I give all praise, I give all thanks to Jehovah Rapha, the Lord, our healer, for my present health. But does God really promise to heal all our diseases now, today? That verse we read was a promise to the nation of Israel. They were under a different covenant. It was called the Old Covenant. They were a nation, and God promised to bless them as a nation above all the other nations, agriculturally and, yes, with the health of their nation. We're under the New Covenant. The New Covenant actually is a better covenant. It's a covenant that we are promised everlasting life. We're promised the indwelling of the Spirit, We're promised complete healing, though, in the next life and in the resurrection of the dead, not in this life. As a new covenant pastor, I am weakly confronted with the hurts and the weaknesses, the ailments, the maladies that we have right here in this congregation. Scripture and personal experience teach us that that is normal and that is expected, you will find diseases and ailments and handicaps in every single church that there is in the world today. Even all the Pentecostal churches and all of the charismatic churches that say they have the gift of healing. You will find dozens and dozens who are not healed. I sympathize with all of your weaknesses because I have weaknesses. I am able to sympathize with your sicknesses because I have sicknesses. And I know that when someone is sick, and they're very sick, and they're sick for a very long time, and it looks like they'll never overcome whatever their handicap is, their limitation, their ailment. And when that goes on and on and on, I know that presents an incredible spiritual challenge to you and to your faith as well. It can be one of the most discouraging experiences in all of life to have that kind of sickness. So we pray We pray for each other. We pray for healing for each other. But do we expect to be healed in every situation, every time? We know God sometimes heals, but 
do we expect that he will have to heal in every situation? Today we come in our study of the book of Acts to a man who suffered many, many years, and then God chose to dramatically heal this man. We're going to use this amazing healing, and it was an amazing healing, to address some of our questions about life and sickness and healing. Does God want me well? Even when we live in what the Bible says is a cursed world, what is that biblical gift of healing and how is it used and what should we expect about it today? Is there any good purpose that God might have for the sicknesses either that I'm going through or that I might go through? I forgot we're back in the gym and it keeps flipping my page all the time up here. Got to fight that. So I'm going to read chapter 3 of the book of Acts, verses 1 to 10. If you would open there, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and then we'll address some of these issues. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as chapter 2 of the book of Acts came to a close, we read that the early community of believers there were all of one mind. They were unified. They were growing in size. They were witnessing to the Lord Jesus. They were worshiping. They were um, learning from the apostles' doctrine. They were sharing their belongings with one another, and they were having favor with the entire Jewish community that surrounded them. In other words, the unbelievers still, they were believers in God in the general sense because they were Jews, but they were not converted to Christianity. As we open chapter 3, this first church that we're learning from still has the favor of the people of Jerusalem. The community was doing what Jesus had told them to do right before he ascended into heaven. He told them, start the witness of my resurrected life from Jerusalem. So as you look through chapters 3 and chapters 4 and chapter 5, we'll notice that all of these accounts happen in the city of Jerusalem. They're doing what their Lord told them to do. They're still there in Jerusalem. And here at the beginning of chapter 3, we have a little vignette, a beautiful portrait of the church in Jerusalem and some of the activities that were happening and the consequences from them. 
In fact, this one event that happens here is more really than just the story of the healing of one man. It sets the stage for the other events that we will read about in the rest of chapters 3, 4, and 5. In other words, the healing leads to the gathering of a crowd, and the gathering of a crowd leads to Peter preaching his second sermon. That is the proclamation of Jesus. Then the proclamation of Jesus reaches the ears of the authorities, and this leads to the beginning of persecution of the church in Jerusalem. But today, first, we deal with the healing. In the unfolding of this story, we see what God's purpose was for the gift of healing and for some of the miraculous healings that he accomplished in the first century. And we learned that purpose in three, I'm going to call them snapshots as we look through here, three little pictures or snapshots Uh, as we divide this passage. The first is the description of the illness that this man had, and then the second is the healing itself, and then lastly, kind of the point of all of it, and that is the reaction that we get to in in the last verses there. Look back at verses one through three. This is the first snapshot. We're going to call it the illness. Verse one says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So the immediate picture we get here is Peter and John are joined here. They're heading up, up the steps of the temple that's in the middle of Jerusalem. They're going to participate in the formal hour of prayer that the Jews had there where a sacrifice was also made. The the term that is used by Luke here for the temple is the broader term, Yeron, Heron, it just basically refers to the entire temple complex, not the temple building itself. It was a very large complex. We're told that they're going there at the hour of the prayers, the formal prayers. You may remember are mentioned back in chapter 2 and verse 42. The Christians were participating in that time of formal prayers as well. It's what the followers of Jesus were doing in Jerusalem, gathering in that large place. We're even told the time. The time was the ninth hour. That's counted from sunrise, which was around 6 a.m. So this would be somewhere in the afternoon, about 3 p.m. This is one of what appears to be three primary prayer times that the Jews practiced in Jerusalem at the temple. That's according to Psalm chapter 55 and verse 17. The other two times of prayer would be nine in the morning and at noon. So Peter and John are linked here and they're traveling together. In fact, you'll notice that these are the two prominent people in the early chapters of um, the book of Acts and uh, John is usually accompanying Peter. He's linked with Peter. You'll see that in Acts chapter 4. You'll see that again in Acts chapter 8. And they're on their way up and they notice this man who's been placed by the, by the gate to, to beg. He's probably off on the side of the, uh, the, the street there or the side of the pathway and he's doing what beggars do. He's begging. Look at verse 2. It says, A man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. We're not really given any background about this man. We don't know his name. We don't know his parents' names. We don't know his hometown. If you were to skim down to chapter 4 and verse 22, we learn that the man was over 40 years old. So this is not a boy, this is a grown man. But most importantly, for the purpose of this story, this divine account, Luke tells us this was a man who was lame from birth, from his mother's womb. 
a terrible limiting handicap, especially if you lived in a more rugged culture like they had. Um, Today, there are a lot of equipment that is provided for those who are handicapped. You wouldn't find that kind of equipment there. You wouldn't find as much sympathy in, in that kind of a culture. It was harder to move around. So this was a very debilitating and limiting handicap. Actually, lame is the Greek term kolos. It could be translated crippled. And, and not just crippled, he was crippled from birth. He's never walked. He's never known how to walk. He didn't walk for his first 20 years and then have an injury in the workplace. He's never walked. He's never learned to walk. This has always been life for him. Life has always been difficult for him. I mean, life is hard in this world. For him, it was extra hard. And so he was helplessly dependent. We're not told who are these people that took him and seated him in this spot so that he could beg. It's probably dedicated family members, maybe some close friends, someone who cared for him, and they were caring friends. And, and those who are sick and those who are hurting, they really rely on the care ministry of others, of the, the care of people giving their time and their energy for this. They had to regularly carry this man. They had to bring him to that spot so he could beg for money, so he'd have money for food. This was his living. He begged for a living. By the way, this is where we can stop and remind ourselves that we do live still on a cursed planet. It may seem a little less cursed as we live here in the United States of America, but no, the whole planet still remains cursed. God cursed the ground, if you may remember. So we don't expect perfection in this life. We don't expect perfection of our bodies. We, we should not expect that. There are defects from birth. That's part of what happens in a world like ours. That's just part of the imperfections that we experience. When humanity lost paradise, it lost paradise. And paradise has perfect health, and this world does not. So this is just the way it is down here. Some people are born sick. And, and, and it's not because they were more sinners because they were born that way, right? They're just born sick. Other people, they're born healthy and they acquire a terrible malady later. It's not always because they did anything wrong either. It's just the way things are down here. Life was meant to be difficult and labored and hard and imperfect in this world. That, that's how it's meant to be because we sin, because we're not right with God as a world. The ancient people knew pain well, and their medical treatment was nowhere like ours. In fact, we ought to be just count our blessings that we live in this part of the world. You ever thought about that? The kind of hospitals we have here, the medical people, the cutting edge kind of research that is done here is just absolutely amazing. If you read those stories that Lisa Reisman is writing about the people that come to the Hospital of Hope, read them and think about the circumstance that they're in and thank God for what you have. You've been provided much here. But this is God's prerogative In a fallen world where man is sinful, it's not man's prerogative to have health. That's what I'm telling you. That's what the Bible's saying. It really should be the exception that we have health, not the rule. This is a fallen world. We're sinful before God. We we were told in the garden that if you eat of the forbidden fruit, dying you will die is what it literally says. Surely you will die is how we translate it. This is what's going to happen. Death and decay and disease is part of that. Healing is exceptional. 
Sickness and limitation and pain is the norm. For eventually bodily illness and bodily deterioration is going to kill every last one of us, yes? Unless we go up in a rapture. No one, no church, no place can claim total healing because they're all getting old and they're all going to die. And so anyone who thinks that if you have all faith, you'll never get sick, they're just wrong, just from observation from your eyes. In addition to just the normal ailment of the world, God sometimes also takes on the prerogative of striking people with ailment. That is His judicial punishment. We're warned that way in Micah chapter 6 and verse 13. It says, so also I will make you sick. By the way, the person talking in Micah 6.13 is not Satan. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sin. God did that. Or if you want another example, in Revelation, New Testament, chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus was talking, loving Jesus. And he's talking about an unrepentant, false-teaching woman in a church. And he says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Yes, God uses sickness to humble the arrogance of sinners and false teachers. But not all sickness is judicial. Sometimes, as we said, it's just part of life. Daniel was a godly man. Daniel was a dedicated man of God. And he writes in chapter 8, verse 27, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. (laughs) Now he was praying and fasting, but he got physically sick. He was doing the will of God and the Word of God. He wasn't disobeying, and he got sick. He got quite sick. As we scan through more Scripture, we see God uses sickness in ways that we might not think that He would do it that way. He uses sickness on the part of others to give people who are not sick an opportunity to show compassion on those who are. I mean, when someone gets really sick, you find out who are those who are most merciful and compassionate in a congregation. I remember being laid up in Johns Hopkins, and the people I wanted to visit me were not the people that were going to preach at me. I wouldn't have wanted me to visit me. I liked the people that were going to come bedside and go, oh, it's going to be okay. What compassion and mercy, and by the way, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit, yes? And it's an important gift. And if you've ever really been sick, you understand the importance of it. So that's one reason he allows that. The whole parable of the Good Samaritan is about that, right? In Luke 10, 33, he comes along, he sees this man who's beaten and the good Samaritan, he heals his wounds, he pays for him to be cared for. Compassion, the attribute of compassion can be shown in a suffering world. And that's part of God's purpose for that. God even displays his own compassion because the world has fallen into sin. An attribute he would never be able to demonstrate if we had not fallen into sin. For all of us, the the weaknesses we have, the inabilities we have, the maladies of this present life move us along life. Now, when you're young and you're strong and you have no illnesses, you think you can do anything. And so a message like today, you're totally turning that. You don't want to listen to anything like this. You don't think it's relevant at all. But just hang in there a few years. It's coming. (laughs) 
But ailments have a way of moving us along the path of life. Now, I know when you're sick, it seems like time stands still. But really, it is a way of moving us along. What happens when you're sick, and then you recover, and then you're sick, and then you recover, and the next time you get sick, and it's even worse, and you begin to realize your body's breaking down. What is happening to us as we're aging and getting sick, and then a little bit of health back, but not all the health we used to have, and we can't jump as high, and we can't work as long? What is happening to the people of God in this world? And the answer is they're getting ready for a better life. God is preparing them along the way and moving them along life to get ready for eternal life. That's what He's doing. That's His good purpose in it. He wants us to long for eternity and not put all of our hope and all of our plans in this present life. He wants us to long for the resurrection of the body, not just dying and being with Jesus, but then waiting also for the resurrection of your body, which is our hope. He wants us to think about the next life more. He wants us to work as if that next life is coming a lot faster than we realize. So we don't get stuck on the here and the now. God has told us the things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are what? They're eternal, right? In Romans 8, 23, it reminds us of this. Paul writes, he says, We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What does he mean by that? The redemption of our body. What's he talking about? When our body is bought back, what does that mean? The resurrection of our bodies. Sickness helps us long for eternity. And as I am seeing with my mother, with the elderly, and you see increasing breakdown of their body. That is part of what God often does to prepare people for death. Death for the Christian is, as it has been said, but a door. It's just a door. A Christian never experiences death. You don't experience a door, do you? You walk through a door. You experience the hallway, and then you experience the gymnasium. You don't experience the door. And that's what death is. It's a door from suffering into glory for the Christian. And to get someone to begin to let go of the life, the suffering is part of what God does to get their mind and their heart ready for a greater existence. God has compassion even in the midst of suffering, beloved. But here, we have to deal with ailments and sicknesses. And in this healing, God actually had another purpose for healing this 40-plus-year-old man. He had suffered his entire life, 40 years of not walking, 40 years, 45 years, whatever it was, of not walking, of crippled feet, of watching other people go out and come in, of watching them go to work and talk about places that they visited, of watching them be able to accomplish things, and he was not able to do that. What severity and duration this illness had on him. And that severity of this illness, the duration of the illness, the incapability of healing to the illness is something that lays the background for the beauty and the power of the miracle that is about to happen. Notice that Peter and John encounter this man at the gate that is called beautiful. Now, I have a gate in my backyard, and I would never call it beautiful, so this must have been a really nice-looking gate of some kind. We actually don't know for sure which ancient gate that Luke is referring to. The more recent scholars favor the Nekiner date, 
the Nicanor date, gate, and um, it's also called the Corinthian gate. That's probably the most likely one because it was said to be overlaid with Corinthian bronze. We get that information from the Jewish historian Josephus. He mentions the gate as being quite grand and even more impressive than the other gates. So maybe it's at this spot that his friends or his family placed him so he could beg. You ever seen someone begging? Have you ever had to beg? Begging was and is a very demeaning activity. Would you agree? You think you don't like your job. This was his employment. This was his job. What role did he have in society? Answer, he was a beggar. He was not a craftsman. He was not a soldier. His role in society was begging. He was begging for money, more properly called alms. Beggars would want to take the best spots so they could get the most amount of money. That only makes sense, right? Where were the best spots? Well, today the best spots seem to be at the intersections. It's where people are now, begging. Back then the best spots were along the main highways when people were traveling. The best spots were out in front of the homes of rich people like Lazarus who had all those sores and was camped out in front of the rich man's house in Luke chapter 16. However, the very best location for a beggar in this society was right where this guy was. He was by a gate leading into the temple because those that were visiting the temple were most likely to be in a worshipful spirit and to be generous in their hearts. Furthermore, there were throngs of people who came in daily through the gates, pouring into the gates for the regular and routine sacrifices and prayers that were said. Notice the text mentions those who were entering. It's a continuous stream of worshipers that came through. So it's very likely he'd get a couple of coins for himself to be able to take home and to be able to purchase his next meal or maybe even more. And for the worshipers, they knew that almsgiving was an important part of their own duty. In fact, almsgiving was an important responsibility of every Israelite. They were supposed to give to the poor. Even Jesus as a rabbi taught in Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to charity. What does that mean? That was almsgiving. So in verse 3, this beggar saw Peter and John. They're about to go into the temple. And the beggar began to ask them to receive alms. Again, I'm saying he's doing his job. He's, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And I imagine when you do the same thing over and over again and it's your job, you begin to get good at it. You begin to know how to do it and how to do it well. So he must have had some skill at it. He's been, he's been crippled since birth. This isn't his first rodeo. He's done this before. The man has asked and asked and asked. And this verb asking is in the imperfect tense, and that lets us know he was repeating his request. He may have called out to Peter and John several times. Beggars know that their success a lot of times depends not on the goodwill of people because they're often reluctant to give up their money, but their success depends on wearing down reluctant givers until they finally feel, okay, I'm going to give them something. And then they feel good in their conscience. But what he didn't know is that Peter and John were not reluctant givers. And so we come to our second snapshot, and that is the healing. And I promised you a halftime, and so this is halftime. So we're going to pause right here. 
and we're going to have Doug come up and we'll sing a hymn. And I want you to stretch. It's required. You must stretch because I got another half to go. I don't have a halftime speech, though, but I can say God is faithful just as we sang and his faithfulness must be believed when our eyes do not always see the things that he has promised come to fruition. For some of us, that means in the midst of suffering, we have to continue to exercise our faith and let God deepen our faith because we don't see the answers to our prayers. But in the end, God is faithful to all, and you will see that. Once in a while, we get to see God's power in a miraculous way break into the norm and change things, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Um, God indeed is faithful. So verses 4 through 8, and our second snapshot is the healing itself. Look at verse 4. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now, how we're not really told, maybe the Holy Spirit led Peter and John at this moment to gaze intently at this man and to, to choose to do this healing, we're not told, but there was a decision that was made, this man was going to be healed, and they turned their gaze on him. That word actually means a very strong gaze. They knew what they were about to do. Peter and John understood what they were about to do for this man. The lame man had absolutely no idea what was about to happen to him next. He was probably staring at Peter's money belt, you know, or, or at his hands to see if there was a nice shiny something in there, some consideration for his plight. He was thinking the only reason that someone would say, give me your attention, was they wanted to give him a gift. And if it was a really intense kind of intention, he might have thought, he's going to get a lot of money from this guy. He probably started to get his hopes up for a little bit of, a little bit of some alms. Here comes the money. This is going to be good. You, you wonder what his internal process would be. But he had no idea, no idea what was about to happen. That also means he had no, listen to this, faith preparation for a healing. So often today, people have to go through all of this stuff to build up their faith and build up their emotions and feel the presence of God before a healing can take place. None of that here. We, we don't even know that he's a believer. In fact, if you, if you look at the, the way it is, it doesn't look like he is a believer, like he's part of the community of Christians. So next, Peter delivers this better gift that he wants to give to him, better than silver and gold. Verse 6, but Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold. Now, you could stop right there and say that is a little, little side note that tells us the apostles practiced what they preached. These were not men of gold. They were men of God. They were not using their power and their healing ministry to get rich. They used it to bless others. When he said, I don't have silver and gold, he wasn't lying. He didn't have any at this time. He was not getting rich off of the community. He was giving things away like everybody else. Peter and John were givers. They, they gave financially to others. So he says, I don't possess that. But what I do have, I give to you. So he's giving him a gift. In the name of Jesus Messiah. Jesus Messiah, you see. Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. <laughs> what a statement. Walk. This gift would instill faith in this man in Jesus the Messiah. 
Peter told him, I'm not going to give you silver. I'm not going to give you gold. I don't even have any right now. My gift is more precious than gold and silver. Indeed, how many sick people would give up all the gold and all the silver in their house just to get their health back? How many would travel a long distance and pay all of their money to get to that location, to get to a healer, and to get to a physician who was renowned to be able to solve their problem? How many people travel from around the world to come to our region of the country to get assistance from the great hospitals and doctors we have here? What great money is spent. Peter said, my gift is more precious than gold and silver. Peter had a gift. It wasn't gold and silver. He had, Peter had, and John had the gift of healing. They had the genuine spiritual gift. The Bible calls the gift of healing. And Peter wanted to use that gift. What is a gift? Gift is something that is given to you that you do not deserve. Peter did not deserve to have the gift of healing. And he was about to give a gift to this man. And that means that this man did not deserve the healing that he was about to get because it was a gift. So God gave a gift so the gift could be given again, and none of it is deserved. It's all by the grace of God. This, beloved, is an example of God's sovereignty and mercy in healing. Do you remember what God said to Moses? I will have mercy on who? Whom I choose to have mercy. There's nobody that can force my hand and tell me I must have mercy. Anyone who thinks that mercy should be automatic with God doesn't understand mercy and doesn't understand God. Mercy is not earned. Mercy is not automatic. If God gives it to you, it's mercy. It's not what's deserved. No one compels the hand of God Almighty to heal. No one can command God by their faith to do something as if he's a genie in a bottle. Just rub it and give him a command. No one can demand God to heal their disease. When man tries to use faith that way, that's not faith. That's presumption. Faith has humility. Faith gets down low. You remember that woman that said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That's faith. Heal my daughter. That's faith. It's humble. It's the proud that stand up and say they can claim it for themselves. It's not faith, that's pride. This is sovereign mercy being shown to this man through the hand of Peter and John, two men of God. Listen, there were probably dozens, if not hundreds, of beggars in Jerusalem who were not healed that day or the next day or the next week or the next month. This one was healed. Why? There is no answer. There is no answer. The only answer is God chose to do it. And God somehow communicated that to Peter and John who had been given this gift to allow that gift to spill over and benefit others. It was God's choice to heal. And look at the dramatic way that he was healed. Peter made it very clear, this healing is not from me. It is in the name of Jesus the Nazarene. That's how he was identified in early Acts, which Jesus, Jesus was a common name, the Jesus who was from Nazareth. Boy, that must have gotten to some of the people in Jerusalem. They're too proud to hear that because Nazareth, we think that's a great city. Back then, it was nothing. It was a country place. It was nothing. It was unimportant. This was Jerusalem. It was the capital. You're telling me in the name of this Jesus from Nazareth? 
You know, where would we say? From some place we think is not all that impressive in America. From there? That's nowhere. That's the middle of nowhere. That was Nazareth. Up in Galilee, they were, they were thought of as less. And here he is, Jesus the Nazarene. And Peter is saying, the power that is about to come to you, the grace that is about to flow towards your way, the healing that you are about to receive comes from the name of Jesus, Messiah of Nazareth. Jesus had the power. Peter did not have the power. The power was not Peter's. The power was Jesus. Jesus was using Peter to heal. The name of Jesus of Nazareth, be specific about which Jesus you're talking about. The name of Jesus of Nazareth has power because the name stands for everything that the name directs you towards. That is the person. The name speaks of the person, and the person sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He has all authority. He said so. And so that name has power because the person has power. That person had been on earth, and that person had gone walking throughout all of Judea and Galilee and even Samaria, and he, Jesus, had healed people by the thousands. He had touched them. He had talked to them. He had given commandments. And every kind of disease in Israel, Jesus, in his public ministry, had healed. And now he's gone. He's ascended into heaven, and Peter cannot heal himself. Peter is not a physician. Jesus is the physician. Peter can only use the name of Jesus and that person of Jesus and have that power heal them. And so Peter appeals to Jesus and says, really, Jesus is that Jehovah Rapha. Jesus really is the Lord, our healer. That's who he is. The one that blessed Israel in the past with good health, he is now in a body, ascended, and he is the healer, and he is our healer. He is Jehovah Rapha. So in that name and in no other name, Peter issues a command to the lame man. And his command, how funny is this? His command to a lame man is walk. What funny commandments God can give sometimes. To walk up to the blind and say, see, would be mockery. But it's not mockery when you have power to change eyes, right? To walk up to the unclean and give the command, be clean, be cleansed, to tell the deaf, hear, to tell a cripple, walk. It would be funny if it were not so powerful and true. And because the man was not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to make sure the man knew that Peter was not fooling around, I mean, goodness gracious, someone walks up to you and says, walk, you've never walked, Peter a muscular man, maybe still a little bit impulsive. He grabs him by his arm, reaches down on whatever pallet this man was on, grabs him by the arm, and when he tells him to walk, he pulls him up simultaneously. He yanks him up. Verse 7 says, seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. The man did not even have time to process the commandment that was being given to him. He was told, walk, and Peter grabs him and pulls him up. There's no faith preparation for this man whatsoever here. He didn't even know what was happening to him. He got no introduction, no prep, no practice run. Here's what's going to happen to you today. None of that happened. The only faith that was active in this healing was Peter and John's. That's it. 
And that dramatic visual where Peter in front of others that were pouring through that gate into the temple, when he reached down to pull him up, he did it in front of everybody. That visual made it abundantly clear a miracle was happening and a miracle was happening in this special name, Jesus Messiah. That's what Christ means. Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, the King of Israel. That's the name he was healing in. He was healing in the name of the rightful king of Jerusalem and of Judea and of all of Israel. Remember that the apostles continued to preach the message of the kingdom. Remember that Jesus' main message to Israel, the main theme of his preaching ministry was the kingdom of God. Remember that when Jesus was on the earth 40 days before he ascended, the main theme that he instructed his disciples in was the kingdom of God. Remember that when Peter started preaching, he was preaching to the Jews and he was preaching to them about their kingdom. Remember that because these are signs, these are miracles of the coming powerful kingdom that was promised to the Jews. These are little, little demonstrations of power that the message about the kingdom and the king is true because here is a demonstration of something that could only happen in the kingdom when it comes in all of its full power and glory. These were kingdom miracles. These were signposts pointing to a Messiah, a king, who is the king of Israel. That's what these were. Verse 8 gives us more description of what happened here. It says, with a leap he stood upright and he began to walk. What happened? It says immediately his feet, that's plural, and his ankles, that's also plural, were strengthened. And he, he leapt up. Imagine that. Forty years he's never walked. And now he leaps to his feet. This was a healing that was instant. Do you see that? This was instant. It didn't take 20 minutes. It didn't take three days. It didn't take three months. It was instantaneous. He must have felt something. He must have felt power surging through his legs, maybe down to his feet and his ankles. Something felt different. I mean, he gets up and he starts to walk. He leaps to his feet. He doesn't stumble. He doesn't get any practice about how to keep his balance. He just enthusiastically begins trying out his new legs. He loves it. He thinks it's great. It even says he entered into the temple with them, and he was walking, and that wasn't good enough for this man, walking. He had to really enjoy his new legs. He couldn't believe it. He was leaping and jumping up and down, and as he was doing, he was giving praise to God. This is one of the happiest verses in the Bible, it really is. He was doing everything that legs could do. <laughs> he was trying them all out. This was great. Just like you might get some new tool at home and you want to try it out, see what it does. He's got new tools. He's got legs, and he's trying them out. He's bouncing like Tigger to Tiger. He's going. He just loves every feeling in his body. What would normally take months for the, for the muscles to begin to, to take shape and to, to have balance and form and understand, it wasn't just that the ankles were healed, but he received perception in his mind about how to walk and how to jump. How to keep his balance. There's no physical therapy here. There's no walking coach. There's no progression, you know, from a cane to freestyle walking. This is the power of God. It's, inmis- it's unmistakable. And that's the problem with so many people today, is it not? Like Jesus said to the Sadducees of old, you do not understand the power of God, he told them. He lectured them. You do not understand the power of God. What a thing to say to some people that think they're so educated. You do not understand the power of God. In all your education, you do not understand the power of God. 
They say, well, the universe is 14 billion years old. Why? Because it takes that long for it to move and light has to travel. You do not understand the power of God. God can make something in an instant. How long did it take for the water to turn into wine? A second. How long does it take naturally? I don't know, a long time, years. God just touched this man and in an instant what can't happen, cannot be explained by science, cannot be explained by present processes. God did because Peter and John understood the power of God and people today do not. People do not understand the finger and the touch of Almighty God. God is not nature. God is not subject to nature. God does not have to play by the rules of nature. He made nature. Nothing science understands can measure or explain this. Science has its limits. This is the finger of Almighty God. And I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters. Contrary to popular opinion, this was not a faith healing. This was not a faith healing. Faith healed nothing. There are a lot of faith healers today. It's psychosomatic. I don't understand it. It's a trick. But here there's no trick. There's no psychosomatic healing. There's no rush of adrenaline that runs for about three minutes and then he stumbles and falls again. There's no power of suggestion here. There's no, there's no trickery. There's no temporary healing. This was the invasive power of this man's creator touching his legs. For the first time in his entire life, he could get up, he could walk, he could enter into that same temple that thousands had entered, passing him by, and he might have longed to go in there. He knew enough as a Jew that the healing came from God, and he started praising God immediately. Now he knew something he didn't know before, and that was this. Jesus was the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah of Israel. The text leaves the impression that this man now came to understand and came to believe in the power of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That is what the gift of healing in the early church was meant to accomplish. Why was there a gift of healing? It was not given to heal everybody. That's not the church's mission. The church's mission is not to try to make everything in society right, where there's always justice and there's always food and there's always education. That's not the church's role. It wasn't back then. It's not today. Here, the gift of healing was to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. That was the role of the gift. It was not faith healing. Faith healers put their confidence in the faith itself, as if faith is the power. They act like faith is powerful and just sheer belief will accomplish this. And actually, to some degree, they're right. That's been proven by the placebo effect. You know what that is, right? Where they don't give you actual medicine, but they tell you it's medicine and you believe it's medicine and you start to feel better. That actually, the power of suggestion actually works to a degree, but it's, it's trickery. It's fake. It doesn't last. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. This was not that. This was not faith healing. You say, well, if it wasn't faith healing, what was it? It was God healing. It was the power of God, not the power of faith. And there's an important difference. This was a supernatural activity of God. 
He immediately healed. He completely healed. In fact, if you looked at it, verse 16, it says, the lame man now had, it was described as perfect health. Sometimes people are told, you have a healing, brother. And like, well, but I don't feel like I have a healing. No, you need to believe that you have a healing. It's going to go away. The symptoms are still there, but in time, the symptoms will go away. I remember when I was a fourth grade teacher, one of the parents of one of the, one of the kids met me after school when they we were being dismissed and going out into the parking lot, and, and, and the lady came up to me. She said, I got great news. I'm healed. I said, wonderful. That's wonderful. So you're feeling better. She said, no, no. Uh, they told me the symptoms will go away over time, but I'm healed now. And I remember staring at her and thinking, this is one of those moments. Good old obnoxious Tom. <laughs> I said, you're not healed. And boy, was she angry with me. And she believed I was tearing down her faith. I was not tearing down her faith in God. I was tearing down her faith in trickery. That is not the kind of faith we are to have. We're to have faith in God and in His sovereignty. And yes, He can do things like this. But no, He doesn't always do that. And He never plays games and tells you you are healed when you're not healed. God is not a liar. And that was hard for that lady to accept. The whole purpose of the miracle was to point to Jesus so people could say, who is he? He must be the Son of God. We better listen to this proclamation. And they would listen to Peter and John. Jesus did that when he performed miracles. He said in John 10, 25, the works, that's talking about his miracles, the works that I do in my Father's name, these, these miracles testify of me. That's what the miracle-working apostles were also continuing to do. They were continuing Jesus' miracle-working ministry. It was not, listen, it was not the Christians who were doing the miracles. It was the apostles who were doing the miracles. Jesus brought new revelation to His church through a very limited number of men called His own apostles. And so Jesus particularly empowered them with the gift of miracles and the gift of healing so all the rest of the people would listen to them, the new revelation. Paul even defended his apostleship to the Corinthians in that letter of 2 Corinthians we began to read today. In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, he said, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with all perseverance, by signs and wonders and miracles. If everybody did signs and wonders and miracles, or if most people did, or if lots of people did, that would make no sense that these are signs that show you Paul was an apostle. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4, it teaches the exact same thing. It says, God was testifying with the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles. He was testifying to them. He was pointing the arrow to them. Listen, the gift of healing was limited to very few, even back then. Dr. MacArthur writes this in his commentary. Contrary to the teaching of many today, the early church was not a miracle-working church. Rather, they were a church with miracle-working apostles. There's a big difference. The gift of healing in the early church was limited to the apostles and their close associates in ministry. When they disappeared, so did the gift of healing, end quote. In fact, did you know 
that this gift of healing in the book of Acts was performed almost exclusively on behalf of unbelievers, non-Christians, as a sign to them and to those that rejoiced in their loved one being healed that Jesus was the truth, that He was the rightful King of Israel. In every instance of healing recorded in the book of Acts, it is unbelievers who are healed and then drawn to faith. That's true here in Acts chapter 3. That's true the next time in Acts chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Acts 8, verse 7. Acts 19, verses 11 and 12. Acts 28, verse 8. The only possible exception is Aeneas who was healed in Acts 9, and that healing resulted in many people coming to faith in Christ. Unlike the charlatan faith healers of the day, the gift of healing could heal every single kind of sickness. Just look up Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And it could do it instantly. They could go into a hospital and they could empty the hospital. What confusion people are given. What false hope they are given. What tears at their very understanding of God when they're told they've been promised that they would be healed by God and then they're not healed. They feel God is tugging on them like a yo-yo and playing with them. That does not help their faith in the true Bible, the true God of the Bible. As I said, that's not healing, that's lying. True healing is done completely. There's no relapse days and weeks and months from now. Whether they had the faith or not, whether they even said thank you to Christ or not, remember the lepers? Ten were healed. How many came back and said thank you to Him? One. The other nine stayed cleansed. They didn't didn't have faith. They didn't even have a thank you. And God, by His power, not by faith, healed them. And please notice, there was no hyped-up religious service there by the beautiful gate, trumping up their emotions to give them a false sense that God was working, all the music and all the shenanigans, and God is at work. None of that is present here. And God's power worked just fine. In our class, we're studying the life of Elijah, and it's the false prophets who ran around the temple on Mount Carmel over and over, cutting themselves and their blood gushing and calling on Baal, give us rain, answer with fire. And nothing happens for hours. And then poor little Elijah walks right up to the altar and he says, God, answer with fire that they may know you're God and that they may know that I'm your servant. And then the fire falls. That's the power of God. That's the power of God. It doesn't need all that other stuff that buttresses it up. God doesn't need our help. He needs people to just trust Him. He wants people to trust Him. It should not surprise us that not everybody in the early church got healed. Did you know that? In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul said, Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Now that's pretty incredible because Paul had the gift of healing and it would not even work to heal one of his co-workers. The man had done nothing wrong. He was a servant of Christ. He said, I left him sick at Miletus. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 26, it tells us Epaphroditus, again, one of Paul's workers, was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, apparently through prayers, not through the gift of healing. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 37, there was a wonderful woman there who got sick and died. She was a believer in Jesus Christ. 
And, and she died in that church because nobody there had the gift of healing. They had to call for Peter, an apostle, to come to their town, and then she was raised from the dead. So this idea that if you're sick, you should expect to be healed, otherwise you don't have faith in God, is false teaching, and it's hurtful to the faith of the church. It misrepresents the gift of healing, which is clearly presented here in the book of Acts. It hurts the saints of God. Even worse, many use this kind of deception to get rich off of the unsuspecting and the vulnerable in God's church. And we need to speak up against that. Now you might be saying, but pastor, is there any hope for me and my sickness? Does God ever heal again? Does He heal now? Of course God heals. Of course He does. He's still Jehovah Rapha. Of course God heals. First, God uses doctors. God uses the medical profession to help us. God uses the immune system in your own body and time. God heals through that, and we thank God for that. Second, God can still heal in answer to our prayers when it is within His sovereign will that He answers those prayers. That's exactly what James chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15 teaches. It says, pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Sometimes we're sick because of our sins. Sometimes we're sick just because we're sick. But confess your sins if it's appropriate and pray for one another. And the prayers of God's people are effective. We've seen so many people in our church healed through the years. I like the quote from David Peterson in his commentary. He says, Christians today cannot simply command healing in the name of Jesus. However, we may confidently point the needy to the risen Lord and pray confidently for them in His name, knowing that He remains gracious and powerful to heal. In so doing, it is important to remember the perspective that Peter gives in his sermon on this very occasion, that God will not restore everything until Jesus returns and His saving purposes are consummated in a new creation. And he points to chapter 3 and verse 21, for when he preaches, he talks about times of refreshing and renewal that will come from the presence of God in the future. Perfect healing, our perfect healing, our perfect bodies await the renewal of all things. In the meantime, in the meantime, we suffer some and we learn from the suffering and we pray in the midst of our suffering and sometimes God in His graciousness answers and we thank God for that. God wants us to learn when our prayers are not answered and when we suffer and when we want healing and God does not grant the healing. God wants us to learn the hard truths of life. I, I haven't got a word from Christ, but I believe my cancer has been healed. But my arthritis is not healed. <laughs> and I've prayed more for that, I think. I've had that for 22 years. And the use of my fingers becomes less and less. That's why I give you fist bumps and I don't shake your hands particularly strong men out there. It hurts too much. And it hurts and it, it limits my ability to do things and I get frustrated by that and there's no healing in that area. But I'll still pray and I'll still say, God, what can I learn from it? And you should pray. You should say, God, what can you learn from it? We learn the hard truths of life. We learn that we're in a cursed world. We learn that our full healing is in the future and in the resurrection of the body. We learn to have compassion and sympathy on other people. Some people don't have enough compassion, and so God makes them sick. 
And, th- and then they come out of that sickness and they have more compassion for hurting people and they learn to take truth with grace and they learn to be patient and gentle with them. We learn lots of things from sicknesses. We learn to long for the kingdom of God. John Calvin wrote about that a lot. He said we ought to be constantly longing for the next life and ridding ourselves of all of our hope in this world. Haven't you learned yet that the very best and the most gracious, spirit-filled, effective Christians and believers throughout all of church history are those who almost universally suffered with some malady? Oh, there is so much learning of love and so much learning of faith and so much learning of the faithfulness of God in our ailments and in our sicknesses. Can you not see that the disappointments of this life are designed to get us ready to long for the joyful presence of Jesus Christ where we were just told in Acts 2 is the fullness of joy in God's presence? And when God does act out of the ordinary and heal in some great way, we should be in awe of God. And that's the third snapshot, very briefly, the reaction of the people in verses 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were what? Filled with wonder and filled with amazement at what had happened to him. That was the point of the healing. The awe and wonder and amazement of unbelievers that God could do this so they would turn their ears. And the very next thing that Peter does is he gathers that amazed and shocked crowd and he preaches Jesus the Messiah to them. This was huge to them to see a miracle like this. This this. Many of those people had probably heard of the Christian community. They were filling Jerusalem with their teaching, but they had not yet come to faith. And so this startled them. This amazed them. This brought them out of their unbelief, some of them, I believe. They were really ecstasis. We get our word ecstatic from that. They were outside of themselves. They were amazed. They were thrilled. The healing awakened faith in the man and the healing awakened faith in the crowd that saw the man get healed as well. And that is the point. That is the point of the healing. It all goes back to God, does it not? In our sickness, God should get the glory. And if God works in a special way and he heals, God should get the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of it. We don't live for ourselves, for our own comfort, to always be praying for our healing so that we will be comfortable. We're supposed to have in our mind and in our faith and in our purpose a determination to bring glory to God, yes? If you're living for yourself, you're not a Christian. If you're living for yourself, you haven't learned what Christianity is. Jesus said, you want to be my disciple, pick up the cross and follow. And by the way, there's going to be joy. In the midst of suffering, there's going to be joy, irreplaceable joy. But there's going to be suffering, and it's going to be hard, and you need to learn to trust the Heavenly Father with your life. You need to learn that He knows what He's doing. And He brought you obstacles, and He brought you pain, and He brought you limitations, and He brought you sickness, so you'll be on your knees and pray and learn of the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the faithfulness of God, the compassion of God. The love of God, it's all there for us. Father in heaven, please take this message today and comfort those who need to be comforted and stir up those that need to awaken a greater sense of their life for you. We pray all of us, Lord, would uh, cease our grumbling and give thanks in all circumstances as your word reminds us. 
Help us, Father, to be diligent, to uh, follow after you, whether we're sick or whether we're healthy, to use all of our energy for you and to give all the glory to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and yes, our healer, we pray. Amen.